And thank you very much. If you would turn to Romans chapter 7. This is obviously the beginning of Passion Week and Palm Sunday. The interesting thing about Passion Week is that it begins with Jesus walking into or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being received as a king. And this week ends with him in the grave on Saturday, which is a reminder of just how fickle we can be as people. And yet all in the sovereignty of God and all for the grand purposes of what God intended to do through this Passion Week. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to use Romans 7 as the beginning point of talking about what Christ has done for us in light of Easter, in light of our celebration this week. And so read with me, beginning in verse 21 of Romans chapter 7, and we'll read through verse 4 of chapter 8. Verse 21 says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray again. Father, we just thank you again. For our time together, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship we've had the opportunity to participate in so far. And we do pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you'd show us your glory, that you'd show us your goodness, that you'd show us your grace, and that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there are three things I'd like to highlight this morning. Uh, The first point is that evil is the human condition and the Christian's contradiction. Secondly, God used evil to rescue the world from evil through the cross. And then finally, when justice is satisfied, condemnation is silenced. And so I'm praying that God will encourage our hearts to the truth this morning in light of these things. The first thing that I just want to point out is in verse 21, the very first verse that we read, Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul is dealing with the reality of evil in Romans chapter 7. And he talks about it in terms of what happened before he was a Christian, in terms of his unbelieving condition and the reality of evil in his unbelieving condition. But then he moves into talking about the reality of evil in his believing condition. 
condition as well. And so he recognizes that there is a real problem of evil in the world and that that problem of evil in the world is a problem of evil in our hearts. And so in the unbelieving condition that Paul talks about in Romans 7, describing himself and everyone else, all of us before we were Christians, evil reigns in the unbelieving heart. But we know from Romans 6 that once we are born again, sin no longer reigns. Sin no longer is master over us. And yet, in our believing condition, sin still indwells us. We still have the reality of evil in us that we have to deal with. And so, the issue of evil is something that all of us are dealing with today, whether we are believing in Jesus or not. One of the things that has happened recently in our country is the shooting that took place in Nashville at a Christian school. And every time something like this happens, people begin to try to make sense of it. One way or the other, they try to come up with an answer to why do these things happen? And unfortunately, sometimes it's a politically motivated explanation. Sometimes it's a a real grappling with what is going on. Why do people do these things and what should we do? And so you have all kinds of answers to this question of uh, who was this person and and why did she do what she did? Uh, was she a good person fighting real evil? Is the question that some people are asking. Some are asking, was she a victim of oppression? Is that why she did what she did? Was she a victim of lax gun laws? Uh, was she a truly good person who simply did a terrible thing? Was she an evil person who did an evil thing? Was she a person who should get a pass regardless of what she did? Or should she find a just punishment for what she did? Is she fundamentally and radically different from everybody else? Or is she really just like everybody else? Could she have been saved by God's mercy through the blood of Jesus? So those are all relevant questions, and they're all questions to one degree or another being asked about the issue of evil and seeing evil. And most people would say, yes, to do what this person did was an evil thing. Uh, but we all have a lot of different answers to why it happened and what it means and what the answer is to that. And part of it is defining what evil is. What does it mean uh, to to be evil. And that's one of the things that can be hard for us to to wrestle with is because we look at people and unless they do something like what happened in Nashville, we don't typically put people in the category of evil. We might say, you know, they're misguided or they're sinners, but evil tends to be a different kind of category. And there's a reason for that because there are different kinds of sins and there are different degrees of sin. And there are certain things that we would say are more sinful or more evil than other things. And so there, there are proper distinctions to be made. And yet the Bible talks in such a way that it wants us to really realize what the human condition is. Because if we don't really think about it, we might 
not really understand why Easter is so important. If we don't really understand the, the, the condition, we won't understand the cure. We won't appreciate it for what it truly is. And so there are different ways the Bible talks about the issue of evil. And one way it talks, it says evil is just basically hostility toward God. God as God. Not God as you want him to be, but God as he really is. And that's why it says in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Sometimes the Bible talks about evil as being ingratitude, just being um, ungrateful to God for his goodness to us. And that's why uh, it tells us in Romans 1 that men did not honor him as God or give thanks. Sometimes the Bible talks about evil in terms of just being unfaithful to God, being spiritually unfaithful, so that we worship other things instead of God. And that's why it says in Jeremiah 2, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus himself said uh, that the generation he, he was in was an evil and adulterous generation. All in all, whether you talk about it in one way or another, it all comes down to an issue of the heart. Now, we're not simply talking about doing evil things. We're talking about the condition of our hearts or the, the position of our hearts, so to speak. And that's why, for instance, in Psalm chapter 2, uh, you see people expressing these kinds of attitude toward God when they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Talking to God or talking about God. It says in John 3, men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Even Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And so we hear all this, and, and yet it's hard when we look at ourselves to think, was I really evil before I became a Christian? Um, is that kind of evil still even in me as a Christian in terms of my flesh? Uh, does, is the little old lady down the street next door to me really in that category somehow, based on those kinds of considerations. It's interesting, in my reading this week, um, I read in Joshua, where obviously Joshua's trying to encourage the people to be faithful to God and telling them what that means. And they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Far be it from me, to do something like that. And then if you read on down, just a few verses later, Joshua says, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Far be it from us to serve other gods. And Joshua says, well, let's begin by getting rid of the ones you're already worshiping. How about that? Which is similar to what the disciples said on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Um, what did Peter say? Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Just before he denied him three times. 
which is just a way of illustrating the fact that we tend to think much more of ourselves than we ought and much less of God than we ought. But the reality is we're worse, much worse than we think we are, and God is much better and greater than we think he is. And so if you really read through your Bible and really think about what it says, it's really not an overstatement, even though it might feel that way. Again, it comes down to the idea the Lord Jesus talks about um, good trees and bad trees and uses the image of a tree. Um, A little sapling is small compared to a giant sequoia, but they're both trees. They're both basically the same thing. So you think about people like Hitler. Well, I'm no Hitler. Well, you could have looked at um, little Hitler at two years old, and said, well, he's no Hitler. Or at nine years old, or at 19 years old, but at some point, what he was at two years old showed up when he became the leader of Germany. Hitler was Hitler all along. And the Puritans like to talk about the fact that in all of us is the sin to do what anyone else has done. It's only the grace of God. It's only the restraining grace of God that keeps us from that. Judas was Judas all along before he ever betrayed Jesus. He was little Judas and then a little older Judas, but he was Judas all along. And so the Bible tries to help us see what our true condition is, not because God doesn't want us to love other people who that we might put into that category or not because God doesn't love us because the Bible says he loves ungrateful and evil men. God tells us these things like a doctor who says, you know, uh, I really need to tell you, tell you what's going on. You know, if you walked into the doctor and you had cancer and he said, I've got just the, the cure for you. Here's a, here's a Band-Aid. And take two aspirin and call me in the morning. You're going to be fine. If you had cancer and a doctor told you that, that doctor would not be loving you. It's God's love for people that tells us exactly what our human condition is. Tells us how bad it really is. Because we don't feel that. We don't see that. We don't think that. People don't tell us that. And what we need to know, whether unbelievers or believers we need to know what is really going on in this world with the human condition that's why jesus could say it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick i did not come to call the righteous but sinners he came to save people who are real sinners evil people are real sinners he came to save real sinners he's a real savior for real sinners not pretend sinners real sinners and that's the good news of the gospel that's the good news of easter that's what we celebrate so there's so much more we could talk about in that regard but it all comes down to the issue of our hearts not just what people say and do because The good news of the gospel says God is at work sovereignly and graciously in the hearts of people. And this is what he's doing. It says in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So you will be my people and I will be your God. What is the stony heart? Is it the heart that doesn't cry when you see a Hallmark movie? No. It's a a heart that has no desire for God. It's hard toward God. It's hard toward the word of God. It's hard toward the things of God. It's, it's, has, it's dead to God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Not dead in every sense, but dead to God. Dead in sin. Loving sin and hating God. In the sense that before we repent, we think sin is our friend and God is our enemy. When we repent, we have a change of mind. Sin becomes our enemy and God becomes our friend. It's a change of mind. But before we have that change of mind, we see God as the enemy, just like Adam and Eve. What does Satan say? God's keeping something from you. You need to eat that fruit and you'll be truly happy. You'll find what your soul is looking for. So all of this, for us as Christians, this passage is about who we are in Christ. But we need to know what God has saved us from, and we need to know the nature of what still resides in us. That's why it's so important to really think about sin and think about evil. And it's a reminder to us that we need to pray for people who don't know Christ, and we need to share the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And you can't talk about Easter and not talk about evil. There's no reason for Easter if there is no real evil. And so that's why it's so important to start where we're starting. And so, but secondly, that moves us to the good news, which is God uses evil to actually rescue the world from evil through the cross. And so if you look at verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that he says, there is an answer to the question, how can we be delivered from evil? He cries out in anguish. He asks a question that he knows the answer to. And he says the solution is found in the person of Jesus and what he has done. And so what we find happening is Jesus experienced the evil of men to experience the wrath of God, to deliver us from evil. It's interesting, if you think about the Old Testament, we know that all scripture ultimately points to Jesus, who he is and what he did. And if you think about the story of Joseph, what happened in the story of Joseph? Joseph is hated by his brothers because he's the favorite son. They start to kill him, but they decide, no, let's just sell him make some money off of him, but he'll be dead to us because we'll get him out of our lives. So they sell him into slavery. In the end, you probably know the story, he actually rises to leadership in Egypt, and God uses Joseph to save his brothers and their families. And so what did God do? He used the sin of Joseph's brothers to save Joseph's brothers. 
That was part of the picture, an important part of the picture. And that's why Joseph could say at the end, do not be afraid, for I am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me. It was an evil thing that they did. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This week we'll be thinking about in fresh ways uh, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. What, what happened to him was evil. Let's not downplay it. What happened to Jesus was evil. And yet God used it to bring about the salvation of a multitude of people. If you would turn to Mark chapter 15, and what I'd like to do is just remind us of just one account of the crucifixion and walk us through it as we think about it. Mark 15, 22. One of the interesting things is we started last week talking about the problem of mistaken identity, and Jesus is one of the primary uh, persons whose identity has been mistaken. And if you read in John 18, the religious leaders who were uh, encouraging Pilate to put him to death uh, say about Jesus, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So they look at Jesus and they say, we're not the evildoers. He's the evildoer. That's the, the human condition. I'm not evil. God is evil. God's the one trying to keep me from what's good. I'm just pursuing what's good. And so we see that same kind of thing playing out in the passion of Christ. In Mark 15:22 says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. In other words, the killing place. Possibly shaped like a skull in terms of a hill. It says in verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He refused it because it was a kind of painkiller. And he refused to lessen his suffering on our behalf. Verse 24 says, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Obviously, the evil of man is especially seen in the murder of the God-man. It's in the cross that we see just how sinful and evil human the human condition is. At the same time, it reveals the love and glory of God, but it shows man and it shows God. It shows how bad we are as sinners naturally and how glorious God is. The interesting thing is you could argue that because we all are the same at root, every sinner ratifies what Adam did and every sinner ratifies what the Jews and the Romans did to Christ. The same heart is behind it all. The same heart ratifies a rebellion against God and the death of God one way or the other because we want to be God ourselves. What's interesting is that the Bible doesn't give us a description of the crucifixion. It just simply says they crucified him. And why is that? Well, crucifixion was familiar to people. They knew exactly what it was, so they didn't have to really explain it to people when they originally wrote this. They knew it was a horrible way to die. 
Others were crucified too, though. It wasn't just the act of being crucified. There were two other people crucified with Jesus. And so it wasn't just the crucifixion itself that was significant. The physical suffering that Jesus went through was horrible, but it was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering because he suffered hell on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross. That was the real suffering that Jesus went through. It's interesting, it says that they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots, and that was basically part of the compensation of those who did the crucifixion. They got to have the clothes of whoever they crucified. And so you have this picture of these men who value what the Creator made, but do not value the Creator. The Bible says all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And yet, in his crucifixion, they didn't value the Creator. They just valued what the Creator made. It goes on in verse 25. It says, It was the third hour when they crucified him, which would have been about 9 o'clock in the morning. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Which is interesting in light of the fact that the week, Passion Week, begins with them receiving him as the king, and then crucifying him as the king. Now, obviously, Pilate had that written in three languages, in a sense, to taunt the Jewish religious leaders. He didn't believe that Jesus was the king. They didn't believe that Jesus was the king. But they spoke better than they they knew. God had it written there because God wanted it known that he is and he was the king of the Jews and everyone else. And yet the natural man may in various ways acknowledge the truth. And yet, apart from the grace of God, it's an empty declaration. Apart from God's grace. In verse 27, it says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. The idea of him being Crucified with them means he was considered no better than they. And they didn't typically crucify people who stole things. They crucified people who were insurrectionists. And so the robber, the word robber could also mean insurrectionist. Just like Barabbas was a robber that was let go. These men probably were had participated in the insurrection. That's why they were being crucified. And Jesus was classed in terms of an insurrectionist. He's someone claiming to be king, and he's trying to overthrow what they would consider as the proper kingdom. And yet, he fulfilled scripture. Isaiah 53 says that very thing, that he would be classified as an insurrectionist, somebody who is trying to take something that wasn't rightfully his. And yet he came to claim what is rightfully his, which is you and me and everything in the world. It goes on to say in verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. It's interesting that in our own natural evil state, we condemn God and justify ourselves. Those who are mocking Jesus were condemning him. 
In other words, saying he deserved what he was getting, but we don't deserve that. And that's the natural man. And our, before our eyes are open, before God gives us a new heart. It says in verse 31, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. The irony of this is that the evil of man condemns what God does to bring good to the evil. They're basically mocking Jesus as he is saving sinners. By saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's what we do naturally. We mock what God is doing, and we don't realize that God is doing us good through it. It goes on to say in verse 32, Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Part of it is, uh, these men were saying, do one more thing, and then we'll believe you. He had already raised people from the dead, healed lepers, healed the blind, healed the deaf, healed the mute. And they say, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe you. Um, God can never do enough for the evil person, the sinner, to truly believe on his own. will never believe apart from grace. Secondly, you've got those crucified with Jesus condemning Jesus. The condemned are condemning. The condemned are insulting. And that's the irony of it all is that you've got this picture where people who are truly condemned are condemning the one who isn't, who has no sin. He's being crucified for our sake, not because of anything he did. And the irony, too, is that we as sinners would ask Jesus to come down from the cross when that's the only hope that we have to be saved. We will ask for the very thing that will lead to our destruction. That just tells us how... Warp we are as sinners. We will ask for what will bring about our destruction, not our salvation. So when you think about all that's going on here, just highlights what we've been talking about, how the, the human condition is so warped and so perverted and so blind and so hostile to God. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we can be thankful that he did what he did and he did not come down from the cross. In verse 33, it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour would have been noon. The ninth hour would have been three o'clock. So from noon to three, it fell dark. It says in verse 34, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me i believe at this time when everything goes dark and where did it go dark was it around the world a lot of people think it probably was over the land of judah it just went dark it wasn't the time of the year where you could expect an eclipse or anything like that so it would have been a supernatural thing 
And it's during this time that what's going on physically in the universe is a picture of what's going on in the experience of Jesus on the cross. He's experiencing the darkest thing that anyone could experience, which is hell on the cross. He's experienced the real suffering of the cross. The physical suffering was nothing compared to the wrath of God that he experienced in our place. And he quotes Psalm 22. He's quoting Psalm 22 to let us know what is happening. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who'd never known any kind of separation from his father was experiencing the wrath of God in our place. And yet, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means at his lowest point, in the darkest hour, his heart was still a heart of trust and love in his father. It couldn't get so dark that Jesus would turn and curse God as Job was tempted to do, which is what Satan surely wanted Jesus to do. He would not do that. Verse 35, it says, When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They think he's talking about Elijah. Uh, Some would say they probably uh, just basically reinterpreted that uh, for their own fun. And in giving Jesus a drink, it wasn't meant to relieve his suffering. It was meant to prolong his suffering. And so it goes on to say in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, if you read all the accounts, there are two things that it tells us that Jesus did right before he died. He said, it is finished. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so whether or not he shouted both of those things or shouted one of those things and whispered the other, I don't know. But right before he died, he said, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit spirit the it is finished part is i've paid the price that needs to be paid for my people for all those who repent and believe it's finished it's done their salvation has been purchased and i father am ready to come back to you goes on from there and it says and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom The veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was so thick that nobody could just rip it apart. Yet the picture is one of God the Father reaching down, taking the top of the veil and ripping it from the top down and saying, the way is now open. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the great high priest who sacrificed himself and who will gladly welcome us into the Holy of Holies. 
It concludes with a testimony in verse 39 when it says, When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. He saw Jesus die willingly. He saw Jesus die on his own terms. He saw Jesus die and not curse God like every other person that he had seen crucified. He said, surely this man was different. Many believe that he actually became a Christian. That's what tradition says. He saw Christ die and he lived. Have you seen Christ die and has it made you live? The last point that I want to make is close related to what Jesus did, obviously. It's the implications of it for us this morning. When justice is satisfied, which is what Jesus did on the cross, condemnation is silence. That, that is the comfort and sweetness of Easter. The comfort and sweetness of Easter is not chocolate bunnies or even, you know, fuzzy real live bunnies, which was what it was when I was growing up, getting chocolate bunnies and seeing other bunnies hop around. The real comfort and sweetness of Easter is to hear there's now no condemnation. That's the sweetness and comfort of Easter. God declares that we are righteous. Verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it it explains in verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Meaning we could not do on our own what needed to be done for us to be delivered from our evil, from our sin. But God did it. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's the incarnation. God becomes a man in the person of Jesus. And as an offering for sin, that is the crucifixion, he condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning... He showed us what sin deserves. He showed us what the condemnation is that we deserve for our sin. And then he received that condemnation. That he might put it to death on our behalf. He died to put sin to death that we might live. So what becomes new when we trust in Jesus? If we turn from our sin... We see sin as our enemy. We see God as our friend. We repent of our sin and we entrust ourselves to Jesus. What happens? Well, we'll talk more about this in the future, but we get a new position. We become a new person. We have a new power. And I just want to focus on the new position in light of what Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 8. The new position is that, first of all, we're forgiven. That's what Romans 5 says talks about when it says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He bore our sin and he received God's wrath. And if we entrust ourselves to Jesus, give him our lives, we're rescued from the wrath of God. Uh, One of the pictures that we used on the men's retreat was a story by R.C. Sproul when he talks about this priest who 
is given the opportunity to preach in front of the king. And on the way there, during a storm, he falls into a mud puddle and gets dirt all over his outfit. He shows up before the king and the court jester says, you can't preach before the king in those dirty clothes. And so the king says, you need, need to do something about those clothes. And so the priest leaves and he tries to find a fuller who would wash his clothes and clean his clothes. And there's nothing that can get his clothes clean. And then somebody says, go see the king's son. And he goes to see the king's son. And the king's son says, show up like you are before my father and I'll take care of everything. So he shows up and the king says, Why are you showing up in your dirty clothes? And the court jester says, which is a picture of Satan, he can't do that. You need to deal with him. And the king's son shows up and says, it's okay. I will take care of everything. And he takes the dirty clothes and he gives the priest his clean royal robe. And the priest is cleansed and he's clothed in the righteousness of the king's son. And the father welcomes him gladly. And that's what Jesus does for us. He has taken care of everything that we might stand in the presence of God without fear, without condemnation, without rejection. It goes on to tell us that we are righteous in the sight of God in Romans 5 as well when it says in verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will be will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Many people have talked about the fact that if we were only forgiven, we could not go to heaven. Heaven is for the righteous. Adam had to be righteous in order to inherit eternal life. He was simply innocent at the beginning. He had to obey everything God told him to inherit eternal life. Because God rewards the righteous. What Jesus did on our behalf was twofold. That's why he's the double cure. He died in our place, but he also lived in our place. He died for our sin that we might be forgiven, but he gives us his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, so that God rewards us because of Jesus. He gives us eternal life, and he gives us the blessings of eternal life because of what Jesus himself earned. I also mentioned on the retreat that John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, struggled greatly with the fear that he had committed the the unpardonable sin. And he struggled with whether or not God was going to forgive him and accept him. And he wondered what his real position before God was because he saw his ongoing sin. And he said one day he was meditating in the field and all of a sudden it struck him. This sentence came into his mind, your righteousness is in heaven. And he began to think about that and the Holy Spirit began to open his eyes to see that who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit was saying to John Bunyan, your righteousness is in heaven. Don't look for it on earth in your own efforts, in your own goodness, in your own righteousness, you will always fall short looking at yourself. Your righteousness is in the one you've entrusted yourself to. And his name is Jesus. Therefore, no matter whether it's a good day or a bad day, your righteousness before God does not change. 
because it is the righteousness of Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you have believed into Christ, and that's what the word believe in means, means believe into union with Christ. If you've done that by God's grace, you have his righteousness. And God rejoices over you even on your bad days. God loves you just as much on your bad days as he does on your good days. Because he receives you in his son. And he has said that Jesus is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everyone united to him, God says, you are my son and my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's the good news of the gospel. That is the gospel. And so, regardless of what battles we might have with indwelling sin, we're not condemned. We should fight that. We should say, get thee behind me, Satan. No matter what my sin is, Jesus has dealt with that, and he is my righteousness. And therefore, it means that to not be condemned, the positive side is, I am loved. To read on the rest of the chapter of Romans 8 is very much about the fact that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. You think about the thief on the cross. At one point, both of them, both of the robbers were insulting Jesus. But at one point, one of the thieves on the cross says, what are you doing insulting him? He he doesn't deserve what he's getting. We deserve what we're getting. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This guy's on the cross. And Jesus says, there's therefore now for you no condemnation. You're free. You're loved. You're welcomed. There's a, there's a story, and I'll close with this story. A story I heard this week that was told at a conference on uh, Puritan on the Puritans. It was about this uh, saint who was dying, and he was stricken by fear of death, and he was afraid that maybe he wasn't really saved. And so he went to bed one night after talking to a preacher who didn't, uh, from his perspective, do him any good. But he had this dream, and in this dream, this man who's about to die is standing at the pearly gates. He's at the gates of heaven, and he's walking. Pe- he's watching people walk through the gates. And the first group of people that walk through the gates are the patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They walk through, and an angel steps up and says, can you go in with them? And he says, oh, no, I can't go in with them. And so he continues watching, and then the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, walk through the gates, And he watches them go in, and the angel says, can you go in with them? He says, oh, no, I can't go in with them. And then another group comes in, it's the apostles. And they walk through, and the angel says, can you go in with them? Oh, no, I couldn't ever go in with Peter and Paul and and those, those men. And then the martyrs, a big group of martyrs, those who had died for Christ, go in. And the angel says, can you go in with them? Oh, no. I've never laid down my life for Christ. In fact, I'm so fearful I could never go in with them. And then there's another group, which is a large group as well, and at the head of that group was Manasseh. 
Now, if you read the story of Manasseh, Manasseh was one of the most evil, and you could argue the most evil king of Judah. And you read the story of Manasseh, and actually, Manasseh gets saved. You read his story, and you see all kinds of things that he did. I don't have enough time to go into all of it now, but you, he went so far as not only as putting idols in the temple, but he sacrificed his own children to foreign gods. Evil, evil person. And yet it says he was carted off into exile and then God brought him back and he repented and he asked for mercy and God gave it to him. God gave it to him. So, in the dream, the angel says, can you go in with Manasseh? And the man says, you know what? I think I can go in with Manasseh. I believe I can. So he wakes up from his dream and he shouts to his wife, I know I can go to heaven. By the blood of Jesus, it's sufficient for any sinner. Spurgeon talks about this and he says, you know, uh, the animals going into the ark had to enter through a door that was big enough for elephants to go in, in, which means it was big enough for little mice too. And he says, you know, you may not feel like you've sinned like Manasseh. You haven't sinned like an elephant but maybe you think you've sinned like a mouse and the door is wide open for you. If God can save Manasseh, he can save you. He can save you. That's why he could say at the end of his sermon on Manasseh, Spurgeon said, if you should not feel that you have sinned after the terrible fashion of Manasseh, yet if there is room in God's love for such as he, there is room enough for you. And the silver trumpet is ringing out the joyous invitation that we have often sung. Come and welcome to the Savior. He in mercy bids thee come. Come be happy in his favor. Longer uh, from him do not roam. Come and welcome. Come to Jesus, sinner. Come. God saves real sinners. Jesus saves real sinners. If you know yourself to be a real sinner, you qualify. And Jesus has come, and all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Never, ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Easter, which we celebrate. We thank you for your word. Help us to receive it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to rest in it. Father, I pray for those here today who are not yet resting in Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see and their ears to hear and grant them grace to agree with you about their sin, to believe the good news that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for them, and may they call upon you for mercy. And know that you have granted it. Father, for those of us who have already done that, I pray that we would grow 
and our understanding of just what you've saved us from, that we would know that we've been forgiven much. And I pray that we would love much as a result. Please prepare us for our time in worship and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.